I played a gig on St. Patrick's Day in Austin, Texas. And when I showed up to the gig, I found out that there were these little girls that were probably five or six years old, and they were supposed to open for me. And they were dancers, and they were going to do some kind of an Irish dance number. And they started off, and the crowd really loved them. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, man, this is trouble. I don't know how I'm going to follow these girls. And as I was standing there watching, Ray Wiley Hubbard walks up to me, and he says, Otis, you don't want to have to be following these little girls. This is trouble. This is bad. And I said, I know, Ray, it's going to be hard. And he's like, no, I'm serious. You can't follow kids. It's just a rough way to make a living. And we stood there watching, and the crowd just started screaming, and these girls looked so cute in their little dance uniforms. And everybody's cheering and hollering and, you know, just really, really good time being had by the audience. And Ray looks over at me and he says, Otis, this is really, really bad. I said, how bad is it, Ray? He said, this is like following Willie Nelson and fireworks on the 4th of July kind of bad. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and it feels pretty damn good to be home. This is a personal journal, this is a bit of an experiment, and I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Mojo Nixon. Mojo's a singer, songwriter, performer. I think he's pretty much the full embodiment of the word entertainer. And he hosts three different radio shows on Sirius XM. And you can find out everything you need to know about Mojo at MojoNixon.com. I have a lot of good memories of going to Mojo Nixon shows at the patio in Indianapolis, Indiana back in the 90s, and I share one of them here at the end of the show. And Mojo's been really good to me about playing my songs on his radio show on Outlaw Country on Sirius XM, so I was happy to get to catch up with him at a hotel room in Austin, Texas. I set up the mics, and man, Mojo was really loud, so I was worried about peaking the levels and having a bunch of distortion, but... Everything turned out sounding all right. And as you're listening to this, I'd like for you guys to imagine Mojo sitting there in a chair in that hotel room with his arms flying around in the air, his feet kicking out, and he's stomping. He's just really animated and excited. And I was just sitting there and enjoying the ride. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Mojo Nixon. I grew up in a small town, Danville, Virginia. My parents, we went to go see Haystack Calhoun versus the Missouri Mauler. This would have been about 1965. Me and my brother, Artie Farty, went. And uh, my parents were so embarrassed, you know, because that was such a, you know, my parents aspired. They were from a small town in North Carolina, and they aspired to My Three Sons or the Donna Reed Show. They desperately wanted to be middle class, you know. They, they didn't have chickens in their yard, but their neighbors did, maybe. And so they definitely wanted to be middle class. So they wrestling, that was, you know, 
Such a low form of entertainment. <laughs> That's some hillbilly bullshit. That's right. <laughs> and, oh, man, you know, it, it was unbelievable. And I always, uh, Haystack Calhoun was almost killed by the Missouri Mauler till he got to his lucky horseshoe and beat the living fuck out of that guy. Can we swear <laughs> on this thing? Because I just did. Yeah. And yeah, Haystack, and it, oh, it was just unbelievable. Plus, I always saw wrestling as kind of hillbilly Shakespeare. You know, it's you got the good guy. You got the bad guy and you got the story in between. And you got those fucking French guys. Always, there used to be a French Canadian. He always had a foreign object in his pants. The sneaky ass French motherfuckers in there with the thing. You know, and I also always thought, you know, if I didn't, if, if rock and roll or radio didn't work out for me, rest, you know, look, there's about, they need more wrestling managers. The mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, you know, I got. I literally have two uh, wrestling dolls at my house, and one of them is Haystack. I mean, one of them is Hillbilly Jim, and one of them is Jimmy Hart, <laughs> right next to my Richard Petty statue collection. I have most of my money, though, invested in Foghorn Leghorn figurines. You would be surprised at how many fucking figurines there are. I got salt shakers and cookie jars and milk pitchers. And- <laughs> Apparently, there's a sucker boy in every minute. <laughs> well, did Jim Cornette ever make it over to uh, Virginia? No, no, I don't think so. You know, the, Bobby Heenan? Yeah, but that we saw them on TV. That was later. You know, there was a little there was there was a little branch of it. It was either filmed in Roanoke or Winston Salem, and we saw those guys. And you know, they had their own little show. Yeah. They had their own, and then some of the bigger guys would come through. So there was like a North Carolina, South Carolina local thing, and then there was a bigger thing too. And I t- I'll tell you another quick wrestling story. Me and Country Dick from the Beat Farmers went to go see uh, Sergeant Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik in the boot camp, whatever. And we were like in the fifth row, and we were su- this was during that big wrestling, you know, the uh, you know Captain Lou phase, and whenever that was, early '80s, super high on mushrooms. We are too high to be at wrestling. <laughs> and at the end, Sergeant Slaughter won. He stood. He appeared to be standing on the Iron Sheik's skull while blood was pouring down his face as he recited the Pledge of Allegiance. I almost fucking died. <laughs> Shit, I could have I died right then and been happy. <laughs> Jim Dickinson. Producer from a musician, conjure artist, and producer from uh, from Memphis, Tennessee. He made uh, he worked on three of my records, and uh, I think I had a list. You know, after I did Elvis Everywhere, they said, "Well, you should. We're going to get you a better producer." My buddy Ron Gowdy, he had produced it, and he did fine. But we were going to get a name producer, and it was it was literally Keith Richards, Tom Waits. Jim Dickinson. And apparently Keith and Tom were busy. <laughs> I went to Memphis and I found out all about all this wrestling stuff from Jim Dickinson. Spudnik Monroe. In fact, I saw at the uh, at the um, at the Cowboy Jack tribute show, uh, Jerry Phillips, Sam Phillips' son was there, and he started talking about all the Memphis wrestlers and Jerry Lawler and you know, and all that stuff with fucking Andy Kaufman. Well, Sputnik Monroe integrated the wrestling matches there in Memphis. He was a really popular, supposedly 
in all of the households, the black households, there would be a picture of Jesus and Sputnik Monroe. <laughs> and he and the and the black folks would have to sit up in the balcony right. and pay the same amount. And he refused to wrestle until they let them come down and sit with everybody else. And he was so powerful, he was able to do that. The power of wrestling. That's right. <laughs> Jim Dickinson. So J- Jim Dickinson, I always felt, you know, uh, there's going to be like a Jim Dickinson panel on uh, Friday here at South by Southwest. And I always felt that Jim Dickinson was imparting to me some kind of secret wisdom. That there was a secret history. You know, there's the history of the world. There's the history of the Catholic Church. Then there's the real Catholic Church. And I felt there's the, there's the history of rock and roll. Then there's another secret, subterranean, sub, hillbilly subconscious, part of the collective mind, part, you know, of, uh, you know, too crazy, you know, Dewey Phillips, too crazy. Dewey Phillips couldn't be Dick Clark, you know, too fucking crazy. And I always felt uh, uh, that Jim was imparting to, it was like being some kind of acolyte to, to get into the oddball rock and roll club. And Jim was imparting this secret wisdom to me Slowly but surely, you know, and he was very, you know, because there's, there's nuts and bolts things when you're making a record and there's also spiritual things. And Jim was much more concerned with the spiritual part of the making the record. Hell, anybody can play an A chord. You know, anybody can get, you know, the right kind of amp. You can hire engineers to wire everything up. But, you know, if the moment of creation isn't special, then why are you fucking overdubbing on it? You know? (laughs) Hey, you're polishing the turd. You know, what you have is a real shiny turd. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, Nashville's full of it. You know, you know, pop music is full of it. You know, bad songs that's, you know, the drum, everything sounds great, but doesn't mean anything. Music has to connect to people emotionally, subconsciously. I also, Jim always felt that rock and roll was like a secret language between teenagers to tell their parents to go to hell. You know. <laughs> And, um, and, and, and I, you know, and I love, and Jim was very, you know, he's, you know, in Memphis, they could fuck up a one man rock fight. They get stacks going. They fuck it up. You know, they, Elvis is there. They fuck that up. You know, <laughs> Memphis, you know, the, in their attempts to sell out, Memphis always fucks it up. They don't realize what the great thing they have in Memphis. They don't realize, you know, where the, you know, the North and the South, the black and the white, the city and the country, all that coming together there on Bill Street. They don't realize that if they could just do what Memphis does, that's what people want. But they are always so desperate to sell out and cash in, they'll screw up the thing that made them great in the first place, you know. But I, I love Jim Dickinson and I love Memphis. And, you know, those records I made there were better because we were there. And, um, you know, and, uh, uh, Jim, he, you know, like all, uh, all crazy. Jim, will hold a motherfucking grudge. Jim's mad about something that happened in 1957 in a frat house at Ole Miss. <laughs> One time, uh, Teeny Hodges, uh, who played on those, uh, he wrote "Love and Happiness," played on those Al Green records on High, and he was a buddy. He was a weed, you know, Dickinson smoked, didn't smoke as much weed as Willie Nelson, but almost. In fact, if Dickinson did smoke weed, he got all angry and shit. You know, so he had like a, a daily minimum just to get him up to humanness. Anyway, so teeny, I can't tell if it's a music deal, if he's teeny's playing on the record to get the dope or the dope. I can't. The dope and the music are combined. <laughs> so anyway, uh, teeny says, well, we're playing Saturday night at this place, Green's Lounge. Why don't y'all come on down? And uh, and so me, we go down to Robert Gordon, uh, you know, not Rockabilly Robert Gordon, but 
writer, uh, movie man, Robert Gordon Memphis. We go with him. Green's Lounge is just a cement shack in the middle of a field. And there's a big sign on the wall, no dope smoking, with a guy sitting underneath it smoking dope. <laughs> and we know we're in the right place. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know there was like in Memphis, you know Memphis, you know old school, you know corrupt. You know all the bars had to close at a certain time, but there was like three bars that were still open. You just had to know the right thing. Why are you still open? You want orange juice? We got a lot of orange juice, man. It was ninety nine percent vodka or Everclear or maybe fucking rubbing alcohol or turpentine or something. You drink that orange juice. <laughs> Right, and there was like some some bars, like the oldest bar in Memphis, been there since right after the Civil War, and it was it was it got to stay open all night, so the cops and the hookers would have a place to drink, you know, after everybody else went to bed. <laughs> I, can I? Am I making this up? No, it's fucking. <laughs> I'm Memphis, baby, Memphis. <laughs> I got to tell you right now, the Mojo Manifesto, go to, get on the inner tube and Google up the Mojo Manifesto. There's a trailer for the Mojo Nixon documentary. My, my bass player, Earl B. Freedom, made it. Hell, I don't look too bad. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of footage is in that? It's all kind of, you know, it's like the still, it's got a really great picture of Shane with almost no, we, we, me and Skid opened for the Pogues first two times they came to America because they had eight people and we had two. So we could set up in front of their shit, and they still keep their eight monitor mixes and not lose their mind. Yeah. And um, so we we toured with them uh, twice, and uh, and I uh, I wrote this song, Shane's Dentist. You ever heard that one? It goes, Shane's Dentist don't work too hard, always at the pub. Shane says he ain't coming back to their down to a nub. Shane's Dentist don't work too hard, always at the pub. Shane says he ain't coming back to their down to a nub. <laughs> <laughs> Shane thought it was I mean, Eventually, he thought it was funny. <laughs> He'd be over there grinning with no fucking teeth. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a bunch of pictures and stuff. You know, we did this record with Jello Biafra. There's a good, there's some good footage of me and Jello. We, me and Jello did a show. We played most of that album at Liberty Lunch here at South by Southwest. And them Jello songs don't have regular rockabilly R and B chord changes. They got punk rock art school chord changes. A thing, it was like taking the fucking LSATs in Spanish. I had a bit. I had such a headache after the show. I couldn't get high. I oh, I was ramming it up my nose and shooting. I put a suppository up my nothing. Could not get high. That's how. Oh, I had such a fucking headache. Yeah, Jello's a great guy. Uh, but he is the hardest motherfucker to work with. You know, and I'll tell him to sit right here. Me and Jello just don't work the same way. Like I said, talked about earlier, I'm interested in a moment of creation. First, you got to have a good song, and then you got to have a really good take of it, right? You know, the raw, you know, and uh, but Jello saw it much more like. And so to me, it's like clay, and at some point, it's going to harden up, you know, quick quickly. Jello saw everything much more like an director set. He had all these little parts he wanted to move them around, and he so he's constantly fiddling with it. I was done with my part. I was ready to move on to the drug dealer. Jello fucking <laughs> take. We made the album right over here at Arlen. Uh, you know, it's a good record and everything, but I've never been so. I got Al from Ministry. He said, that motherfucker will drive you crazy. You know, as he shoots my hair with him. And, then, and uh, now he just, you know, he's he wants things a certain way. And, uh, you know, we just had really different ways of working. Yeah, I'm probably too quick to say, yeah, that's good enough. 
he was maybe the other way. <laughs> and it, and he was having trouble making it. I don't, you know, I'm, I got no trouble making the decision. Invade Mexico. When we fucking start, you know, you know, show me the map. Let's get a plan. You know, yeah, Juarez. We're coming in through Juarez. You know, yeah. You know. Jello's like Jello's like General McClellan. He never had quite enough troops down there on the peninsula to go up and get fucking Robert E. Lee in uh, Richmond. <laughs> See, your beard is making me obscure <laughs> Civil War references. I apologize for that. <laughs> I, was, uh, I went to college in 1976 in Ohio. Uh, yeah, and, and this is you know, the big Bruce Mania that's happening. You know, it was actually for 75. And I was like, oh, I don't really get it. So my roommate, he's a big Bruce now. He's from up by Cleveland. Bruce is already big in Cleveland. The kid Leo's all, you know. So we go see Bruce. Oh, uh, okay, I got it. I see it now. Right, you know, he's an entertainer. He's got these stories, right? He's, you know, he's, you know, he's playing the, you know, He's playing the working man. I I, I got it, you know, because but you know the musically before I was much more like you know I wanted like you know uh, Alvin Lee or Led Zeppelin or you know hard rock kind of thing, but uh, so in '78 when Darkness came out, uh, you know, which was le much less the romantic city music of uh, Born to Run, much more small town. Well, I'm from a small town. Bruce, apparently, Bruce, I was under the impression Bruce was speaking directly to me. <laughs> Racing in the streets and meeting the girl at the parking lot at the 7-Eleven. Well, shit, man, I just did that, you know. Right. Well, you know, I put it in one of my songs. In a little town I grew up in, you can ride around and get drunk, or you can get drunk and ride around. These are your two fucking options, you know. And um, so that whole, you know, kind of cars and girls and riding around drunk, the existential angst of the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, the, the beginning of the ennui of America, you know, that whole thing. Um, you know, I related to it, and I, and I felt like Bruce was speaking to me. So I saw Bruce three times that summer, and one of them was in Charleston, South Carolina. And for like the last encore, they would uh, – and that place was only like half full. It was like where the symphony played. And it held like, I don't know, 2,000 people. There was only 1,000 people there. And uh, so, like the last encore, Bruce and Clarence would run out in the in the audience, you know, during quarter to three. Well, I ran up on the stage, you know, because like I said, it's like where the you know there was like stairs right there. It's like the symphony, wasn't that? You know, I run up on the stage. <laughs> they didn't they didn't like that too much. <laughs> yeah, I was I was full of the spirit. I could feel the Bruceology all up in me. You know, that one, I was searching for that one moment where I fell alive. And as Clarence is running back on stage, these big motherfuckers chunked me into the audience. <laughs> yeah, but it was one of the, you know, it's one of them changing my life. And it also, you know, seeing that show convinced me I wasn't going to go to law school. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to do what my parents wanted. I was going to be a rock and roller. Fuck it. I don't care if I starved. When you see the Mojo documentary trailer, you can see I was starving. I could tread water in a hose pipe. I could hula hoop in a Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was so broke. I used to uh, steal tomatoes. I lived on Top Ramen. I used to steal tomatoes through the fence of my neighbors. I'd steal his cherry tomatoes through the fence and put them on the Top Ramen just to have something a little special on Friday. <laughs> And, but yeah, no, I, and I, you know, I, and seeing that thing, seeing Bruce, you know, and also I lived in London. I saw the clash in 79, right before, uh, it wanted this rock against racism show. That was another one chain, you know, 
I didn't meet Strummer. You know, and I told him. I, I didn't even tell you this yet. <laughs> I lived in, I literally lived in a squat in Brixton, and my plan was to join the Clash. This is the summer of 79. I, th- through the Pogues, I meet Strummer later. He goes, and I tell him this story. He goes, oh, you weren't the only one. There's about one kid every week showing up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, some of them became roadies, you know. Uh, I think after Roscoe made the album, Whereabouts Unknown, we made it with Roscoe up in New York. And we played, uh, and this must have been the year before we played, this is when I, maybe the first time I played with the band here at South by Southwest. It's packed. We're at Liberty Lunch. It's packed, packed. They're turning people away. Uh, Joe, you know, Kinky Friedman and Joe Ely are backstage making, and I love Joe, I worship Joe, making me nervous. Roscoe shows up, and he is so fucking high. He's Corky, Michael Corcoran, the writer, has given him some kind of super mushrooms, and he can barely put a sentence together. And in fact, Corky, Corky and his buddy have to go to the hospital because they think the mushrooms are poisonous because they're so fucking powerful. And when they call and tell Roscoe this, he goes, Oh, yeah, poisonous. That's what makes them good. He keeps eating more. So okay, we go out, and Ross, so we're going to have an extra. You know, it's going to be me and Wet Dog and the bass player and the drummer. So we have an extra guitar player, you know, filling in the holes. And Roscoe is playing out of his mind. He, he hits every, every, every stop, every moment he hits. But what he's playing sounds like Ornette Coleman free jazz or something, you know. In fact, he's got a B-bender. He's, he's bending that thing into fucking Jesusville, you know. <laughs> so after the show, and this is what we, this is back when we had. After the show, we're going to go have a party at Wet Dog's house right around here. But we got to go, like, get some beer. So me and the bride of Mojo and Roscoe, Drive up to the 7-Eleven, and as soon as we sit there, I go, Roscoe, what are you doing in the back seat? He's not saying anything for like five minutes. I'm psychic weightlifting, man. <laughs> <laughs> so right after he says that, this cop car pulls up. He goes, oh, man, it's bumming my voyage. The cops are bumming my voyage. <laughs> So then we got, and Wet Dog, is, you know, he want, Joe, Joe Ely's coming over too. Wet Dog, we don't impress Joe Ely. We got some, we got some blow. So normally you have like, you know, a picture or a mirror or something. Wet Dog goes and gets the hall mirror. Like, you know, the five foot long, two foot wide hall mirror, puts it on the ironing board and lines up 40 lines. <laughs> Hell, I'm still awake. <laughs> I'm talking some shit too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's there is no vi- footage of it. I don't know what year that would have been. That would have been like in 91 or 92, maybe, um, after Otis came out, which had Don Henley Must Die on it. And, uh, you know, nobody had those camera cell phones back then. So, uh, and, you know, and the video cameras were great big. Plus, the wall is not that big. You've you been there? Right, so the front room holds maybe 50 people. Right, there's a pretty big back room where the pool tables are. So, and there wasn't that many people there. It wasn't packed. And, we, and I'd get reports all day because Don's buddy from high school, uh, Don is from somewhere, Linden, Texas. His buddy from high school, who's a big tree hugger, he hung out at the hole in the wall. And, and everybody said, you know, every time Don's in town, he comes to the hole in the wall and y'all are playing, hey, man, it's going to happen. You know, I didn't think nothing of it. So, sure as shit, we're playing. And everybody, oh, he's here, he's here. And I go, that, and I go to uh, Jimmy Gunn, our road manager. That's not him. He just cut his hair. 
He goes, it's fucking Don Henley, man. And he wants to sing. <laughs> and he's shit-faced. That was, you know, him, him and his buddy are just fucking crawling, knee-crawling, replacements-level drunk. You know, <laughs> they... So I, for once, I am actually stumped. I took my guitar off. I put it on. I, I, was, I, I was literally So finally I go, hey, Don, come on up here. You know, you want to you debate? You want to fist fight? You know, you want, he goes, I want to sing that song, especially the part about not getting together with Glenn Fry. Because it goes, you know, <laughs> Don Henley must die. Don't let him get back together with Glenn Fry. <laughs> put a sharp stick in his eye. And uh, the... Uh, so sure as shit, man, we played the song. He, he was belting it out. He's, Don Henley must die, you know. <laughs> Fucking, you know, Eagle motherfucker sold 100 million records at the hole in the wall. And I, about 5,000 people claim they were there. But it's kind of like the ice bowl, you know, up there. Yeah, it, it, the place wasn't that big. <laughs> it sounds like he's got a good sense of humor, though. Yeah, he took it well. And because um, it, when it originally, when I wrote the song, there was some uh, sniping back and forth in the San Diego paper and the LA Times. And, um, you know, and he was saying, oh, you know, I've sold a million. He's only sold hundreds, you know, so, you know making, it, making himself look bad. Right, you know, but the, the you know, right, the, the way to deflect me. It's just say, like, oh, Mojo, ain't that funny? Right, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Diffuses everything. Right, there you go. So, uh, and then he goes to go, he's so drunk, they got like a blue Mercedes, him and his buddy. But there's another blue Mercedes, you know, near theirs. They spend five minutes trying to get in that other mother, and we can all see him through the window. <laughs> <laughs> and we played, uh, uh, and we played Already Gone uh, as he, after he left. And I can hear him yelling, <laughs> That's fucking Glenn's song. That's one of Glenn's. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, the guy from San Diego wrote it. That's how I know it. <laughs> this guy, Mark Pellington, he's the one that, and he's he's a big time Hollywood director now. He was working there, and they kept asking me to do something. Remember, they had like Randy of the Redwoods, and so I was just an. You know, what MTV would do is they would take somebody like me, an offbeat character person, and use them to kind of increase their hip credness. Because they were playing Journey, you know, Journey videos with you know, and Rick Ashley, you know, and, and Debbie Gibson. But their promos were super hip. All right, so, and so I, at first I said no. So then I made a, 20 demands. I gave in to all of them. <laughs> I said I had complete artistic control. I could say anything I want. Uh, I could, you know, I could not do anything. They had to pay me a ton of money. They had to pay Skid. You know, they had to do this, had to do that. Sure. <laughs> That's what they, you know, they, they agreed. So, uh, you know, my thinking was, because I remember, art, you know, thinking, you know, if I want to be on MTV, but how else is like a girl, you know, in Iowa going to, if you're a girl in Iowa or a guy in Wyoming, how is you going to find out about me? Right. It's not like I'm going to come to your high school or your college. Or kid in Indiana. Right, kid in Indiana. Right, if you live in, in Chapel Hill or, or San Francisco or Austin or Athens, Georgia, then you, yeah, you, you, and you're a hipster, you might know about Mojo. But I was thinking about everybody else. Uh, it went well. I did the, I did the, the, you know, there's about 20 of them, you know, and a few of them, they played a lot. And, the, uh, and then I did a bunch of, I did like spring break and I did Super Bowl. 
and uh, you know, I did Mardi Gras because the original VJs all read off cue cards and they, everything was scripted. So they didn't have anybody who could just go talk. Yes, extemporaneous pontification is my middle name. <laughs> but I, you know, and then, and then, um, you know, they played Elvis. We got a lot of play on 120 minutes and they played Elvis everywhere and burned down the malls. Uh, but they would not play Debbie Gibson's Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child. They even met MTV News, came to my wedding, got married at a go-kart track by Country Dick. You know, we took the traditional victory lap that most go-kart track couples take. And um, But they, uh, you know, they, MTV News had Mo, you know, Mojo's wedding. They also had the making of the video. But when it came to the video, since I made fun of uh, Spuds McKenzie, Tiffany, Debbie Gib Gibson, and Rick Ashley – they wouldn't play it. Winona Riders playing Debbie Gibson. We got we got some New York, you know, art school guy to direct it in black and white. I mean, it's uptown, baby. <laughs> Shit, man, Stanley Kubrick was like, about to come out the grave. What the hell? <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that because I always thought I would do these things for them, and then they would do this, you know, do something for me. Uh, but turned out, then I got the whole. You know, the programming, the music programming department does not know what the promotion department is doing. You're just the promotions department, little whore dog, and we're not going to play your fucking video. You know, so, but it, look, it's, in hindsight, it's shocking that I did as well as I did. I'm, a, you know, I'm lucky, I, you know, I mean, we were, you know, we did a lot of hard work and we had some good stuff, but we're also very lucky. And I know it pissed, you know, seri guys who are serious artists, it had to fucking kill them. You know, they're doing their fucking moany, groany, minor key songs and staring at their shoes. And I'm up there fucking essentially, you know, doing Foghorn Leghorn meets Otis the Drunk, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we're, you know, we're opening for the Pogues. You know, we're opening for the Pogues and the Violent Femmes at some fucking shed. Pleasure Barons was Country Dick, Country Dick Montana from the Beef Farmers idea, and um, Country Dick had a bunch. He had he had something called the Big MR in San Diego, uh, which was kind of a Vegasy, you know, punk rock Vegas thing, and then he had Country Dick and the Snuggle Bunnies, which was the thing before the Beef Farmers, and all these kind of you know featured uh, you know big review. You know, sometimes with dancers and trainers and stretchers and wheelchairs and, you know. So the Pleasure Barons was, the original Pleasure Barons was me, Country Dick, and Dave Alvin doing a Vegas-style tribute to Tom Jones on Acid from Hell with the post-cow-punk supergroup. <laughs> <laughs> and then later, it's Pleasure Barons Part 2, John Doe, John Doe from X, and uh, Rosie Flores and Katie Moffat joined us. And so, we, you know, and we mainly, you know, uh, I did about half covers. You know, I did Amos Moses. You know, I did uh, Gimme, Gimme Good Lovin' by Crazy Elephant. From Atlanta. I did, oh, I did uh, Going Back to Miami by Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders. So if I changed it, going back to Las Vegas, going back to my girl, bah, 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 you know, and uh, we had a great time. Yeah, you know, uh, we made a record. Country Dick uh, sold the record when he didn't own it. That was good. Uh, <laughs> people got all upset. <laughs> but he owned part of it. He didn't. Own, yeah, he sold the whole thing when he only owned a third. Country Dick also promised ten people twenty percent of the profit. 
He wasn't like a real math major or nothing. Dr. Dave was great at getting a bunch of different people who normally wouldn't get together together and getting them to do something fun and crazy. And because he was such a fucking hand bone and such a wild card, everybody else would loosen up. But the business end was not his specialty. <laughs> After Country Dick died, and I knew this already, I knew that uh, touring constantly was going to kill me. I knew that because uh, I didn't know any, you know, no, who nobody wants to see the sober, exercising, eating right, nice, safe mojo. People came for the chaos, and we delivered. And, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of other shit that went on with that. And so. I didn't want to end up dead like Top Jimmy or uh, Country Dick or Jeffrey Lee Paris. And all, these are all guys who, you know, you know Mo, friends of Mojo or you know, guys I really liked. And I could see where this was headed. So, you know, if I couldn't become a wrestling manager and if I, and if, uh, and if I was banned from running for state office, you know, <laughs> and all states that begin with the letter I, you know, and if I couldn't, you know, be a late night used car TV salesman. <laughs> Jesus Motors, no car on a lot more than $666. Come on down. <laughs> I'd give them away, but my wife won't let me. Hey, I, uh. all right. So, right. Bullshitting is my business. So, and my dad ran a radio station uh, in, in Vir Southern Virginia where I grew up. So I always had in the back of my mind, I would do something else. So I got, I got an offer to do something in Cincinnati and I got fired. Well, first off, they had me on a conservative station. I'm like... I mean, people think because I'm a Southerner and I'm a hillbilly, I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a Rush Limbaugh conservative. I'm not. I'm so liberal. I buck up. It's where the anarchists and the libertarians go dig up their guns at midnight. You know. <laughs> right. And um, so, but were you on WLW? I was on WLW for three weeks. This crazy guy, Bill Cunningham. He's he hired me. They, he was in charge of the station for about an hour, and that was his one move, and then they took it away from him. <laughs> anyway, so I I, uh, I I said, well, you know, I'll come try it out for like three months or six months or something. I said, we'll give you, you know, enough money and get your place to live, all that stuff. So I went there. I got fired from LW after three weeks. Um, man versus varmint is what got me fired. I was supposed to be talking about Bill Clinton getting his dick sucked. Well, I was tired of that. So, uh, yeah, man versus varmint. I told the story about how me and my son got the skunk out of our house. And uh, people had all kinds of great stories. But the big boss goes, topic A is Bill Clinton in the Star Report. Get this man versus varmint hillbilly off of the air. <laughs> so they, But they still owed me for like three months. So they put me on the air on the FM morning show, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the uh, morning zoo thing. But it turned out the guy that was the main guy, Eddie Fingers, he was a fan of mine. He was about the same age. He liked, you know, he, he, you know, he liked Jay Giles and the Clash the way I did. So it all worked out. It was, it took a lot. It was a lot of, you know, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I learned by just being on that show. I learned kind of how to do radio, how to do it, and then eventually they, they ran me off of Cincinnati. They said you don't have a job, but we got one for you back in San Diego. So I was doing like afternoon drive on the classic rock. Play, well, I was supposed to play Journey and Sticks, but every time they came up, I would play ZZ Top and Jimi Hendrix. You know, you know, and um, and I didn't know, and you know, 
it was in like some kind of computer program. It's called Profit. I didn't know they could uh, reconcile the log and find out all the one. The guy shows me, you've deleted Journey 36 times. <laughs> I go, you damn right. How the fuck are you know? <laughs> I figured if I got away with it once. They should give you a medal. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, my buddy, Jeremy Tepper, who uh, me and him, he was in a band in New York called the World Famous Blue Jays. And we did a single together. He, he was crazy about truck drivers and truck driving songs. We did a single, UFOs, Big Rigs, and Barbecue. And that was around 1990, 91, something, sometime around then. And me and him had stayed in touch. And suddenly he's running this channel on Sirius XM, Outlaw Country. Little Steven has hired him. Little Steven from Bruce's band. Stevie Van Zandt has hired him to run the channel. So he's, he's like, I'm going to hire you. And, but it took forever. But some, eventually it took. And I, you know, I had to decide, do I want to stay with Clear Channel, you know, and Journey? Or when little Steven called my house, that was it. <laughs> Clear Channel was done. Because <laughs> in my mind, well, what if little Steven and Dills fall down the stairs? Mojo knows in courts. Shit, man. <laughs> I can play the whole motherfucking album right now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, how many solos little Steven do? Shit, I can do one. I got one. <laughs> one in fucking jungle land. I'm ready. Okay, let's go. <laughs> one, two. I'm ready. You know. <laughs> and so, and I remember asking little Steven, I said, well, can I swear? Can I, you know, I said, can I say Rascal Flat? Can I say Rascal Flat sucks donkey dicks in hell? He goes, well, it is in context. And <laughs> <laughs> And then so I started out in Outlaw Country on Sirius, you know, before they merged, and uh, worked out good. And then I got in my political talk show, Lying Cocksuckers, uh, uh, spurned on by George Bush invading the country. It had nothing to do with 9-11. I just couldn't. Nobody seemed to be getting that. Little things. So, the little thing, like, it's <laughs> as if Argentina invaded Colombia. You know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's as if a U.S. invaded Colombia because they were mad at Argentina. Well, they're all down there together. They don't they speak the same line. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. <laughs> well, how did you? How did the NASCAR show come about? And then uh, eventually, uh, XM originally had NASCAR. It switched over to Sirius. I grew up in Danville, Virginia. I was a NASCAR fan since I was a little boy. My dad was a big fan. He took me to races when I was, you know, in the '60s. And uh, in the '60s, and Richard Petty was from Randleman, North Carolina, not, you know, about 50 miles from where I grew up. It, being a Richard Petty fan. In 1967, Richard Petty won 10 races in a row. He won 25 races that year. He won the championship. All right, so it was good to be a Richard Petty fan back, you know, and then that 10 years from, uh, you know, 13 years from, I think, from 64 to, to uh, 78 or something, Richard Petty won six championships, you know, and hundreds of races. And so it, I was always a NASCAR fan. It was always, it was also like a thing, you know, it was one of the things that, you know, it was a certain kind of, you know, coleslaw on the, Hot dog and the barbecue and iced tea and NASCAR, the one of the things that make you a southerner. Yeah. Where, where I'm from in the South. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, I have a NASCAR talk show. Manifold Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta say it like that, too. <laughs> Can't just be old Manifold Destiny. Old. <laughs> That's on every Monday night on Sirius XM and Lion Cocksuckers on the NASCAR channel. Lion Cocksuckers is on Raw Dog Comedy every Thursday night at 8, and I'm on every weekday afternoon on Outlaw Country, which is Channel 60. You know, Hillbilly Rock and Roll, where, the, where we play Otis Gibbs. <laughs> 
Big Wiz, Big Wiz, you're still getting a lot of requests. I like that fucking fishing song. <laughs> yeah, don't play that commie song. Hey, commie folk singer motherfucker. <laughs> play the fishing song. <laughs> Let me tell a story. Wait, you you go talk? I'm a t- okay, you go ahead. I'm going to tell a story. You better cut my mic off. <laughs> it was uh, sometime in the mid-90s in Indianapolis, Indiana at the patio. I was having a really crappy day, and I went to see Mojo Nixon at the patio that night. And uh, it was fun. It was a blast. I was hanging out with my friends, having a really good time. Left with this uplifted feeling that you typically leave with you know, after Mojo Nixon's show. I walk out onto Guilford Avenue, and there's three frat boys pissing right in the yellow line, right out in the middle of the thing. They weren't at the show, just three guys. This is a uh, this is my neighborhood. I live a block from there and uh, for 20 years, and I immediately just kind of lose it because I was tired of if the cops were around, they were always harassing me or, you know, some hip-hop kid or some punk rocker or whatever, but never the frat. Weirdos. Never the frat boys. So I come up, and I just start giving these guys 10 brands of hell. And they're kind of backing down and like, oh, man. I, so, and I'm kind of yelling at them. I'm doing more than yelling at them. You know? You're and full so, of mojo spirits. Well, somewhere <laughs> along the line, I kind of run out of things to yell. And they start realizing I'm not going to hit anybody. So it kind of tilts the other way. Right. And they start yelling at me. And I start thinking there's three of them and I'm about to get my ass kicked. And uh, I start backing off, just thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? I back into something. I turn around and it's you and you say, these frat boys are the same everywhere I go. I can't believe you. And you started yelling at them much better than I ever could. <laughs> better than I ever could. Screaming at them. And you got these guys scared, you know, in their shoes. And they all three apologized and walked off. And you're like, what's your name, man? And I said, I'm Otis. You're all right. We walked back into the club and I bought a t-shirt. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Are you sure that's true? That's true. You know, I don't remember nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I like the sound of that story, but you just you just make your chin up, make Mojo feel good. Oh no, no. <laughs> well, you know, after the show, you're all you know. I'm I'm particularly all jacked up. You know, good luck. I don't have much talent, but I do have a lot of enthusiasm. You know, so uh, you know, <laughs> you know, what? I, uh, what? I, you know, I got I got two chords. Hell, I might go to that third one every now and then. Well, get tricky now. Don't yeah, want to show uh, off. Yeah. <laughs> get above my raisin. But yeah, you know, after the show, you're I'm ready to fucking pull, pull the doors off the car. Yeah. You know. I appreciate you hanging out with me, man. Thanks a lot, Otis. Good, good to chat with good you. Good being on. What's it, what's it called? Thanks for giving a damn with Otis Gibbs. Who gives a flying fuck with Otis Gibbs? <laughs> That's not what it's called. I don't give a damn with Otis Gibbs. <laughs> Otis Gibbs. Can, Otis, I, I wouldn't piss in your mouth if your stomach was on fire with Otis Gibbs. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Mojo Nixon for joining me in that hotel room in Austin, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Mojo at mojonixon.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my fine art photographic prints that would look great hanging up in your living room, You can buy one of Amy's albums. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. 
If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It helps us move up in the search rankings and helps a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.